escorted out of here, eh? <laughs> putting, putting up a fight the whole way, like, I'm not leaving. We're going to start uh, today, actually, we're going to start with a, a short video clip. But before we play it, I have to warn you. Uh, I have to warn you, there is a word in there, it's a very small word, that some of you uh, might not love and might even be a little bit offended by, but the excuse for how I can play it in church is because it's in the Bible. Uh, it's in the Bible as another word for donkey. Um, and in the word, in, in the video, it's in reference to a body part. Uh, and so I apologize now if you're a bit offended by that. Uh, you can plug your ears for that word or you can give me heck for it later on. Uh, my grandmother will certainly do that. Uh, and I'm sure all of us have heard this word before. Uh, so we're going to play the video and uh, yeah, we won't stress about it too much. Typical day for you. Yeah, great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door, that way Lumber can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Tell him uh, space out? Yeah, I just stare at my desk, but it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. Uh, Peter, would you be a good sport and indulge us and just tell us a little more? Oh yeah. Let me tell you something about TPS reports. TPS. Uh, the thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. Don't, don't care? It's a problem of motivation, all right? Now, if I work my ass off and Inatech ships a few extra units, I don't see another dime. So where's the motivation? And here's something else, Bob. I have eight different bosses right now. A big pun? Eight bosses. Eight? Eight, Bob. So that means that when I make a mistake, I have eight different people coming by to tell me about it. That's my only real motivation, is not to be hassled. That and the fear of losing my job. But you know, Bob, that'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Would you bear with me for just a second, please? OK. What if, and believe me, this is so <laughs> hypothetical. But what if you were offered some kind of a stock option equity sharing program? Would that do anything for you? I don't know, I guess. Listen, I'm gonna go. Uh, it's been really nice talking to both of you guys. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah, the pleasure's you. all on this side yes. of the table, trust me. Good luck with your layoffs, all right? I hope your firings go really well. Okay. Excellent. Great. Yeah. Wow. Now, if you've seen that movie, Office Space, you'll be familiar with the plot. Uh, essentially, those are, that's Bob and Bob, and they're interviewing people because they need to lay off people at the company. Uh, and then that main character, that's Peter, he goes in and just like, he doesn't care. He goes in and just basically tells them that. He says, I don't care. Um, if, you, if you know what this, the whole movie is about, it's three employees. They basically, they hate their job. They, they hate their bosses. And they kind of decide they don't like their lives. And Peter's kind of the one who just says, I don't like my life. And I'm just going to stop trying. I just, I don't care. I'm just going to stop trying. When I asked about his work ethic at the beginning, he says, he, if you caught, he says, it's not that I'm lazy. I just, I don't care. It's just, I don't care. And that's kind of his new attitude towards life in general. He says, I just, I don't care. And I think that that's a problem in our lives. And I think that that's a problem in, in culture, is that some of us have an attitude of, we just don't care. 
In our jobs, as Peter says, it's, it's, we work just hard enough to not get fired. You know, we just, just work hard enough just to not get fired. In our home lives, we do just enough to get by, just enough to the bare minimum to get by. And the problem isn't that we are lazy or that we're dumb or that we're incompetent. The problem is often that we just, we don't care. We don't care enough. We are apathetic is the word. Uh, today we're talking about overcoming in week, week five, and this is we're overcoming apathy. So overcoming apathy. Apathy is often used as a synonym to boredom. Uh, and it is a, a synonym for boredom. But the proper use of the word apathy means a lack of interest, a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of concern. Just generally not caring. Other words similarly are similar are indifference, uh, unconcern, uh, malaise. So this idea of you just you don't care, you're not concerned about it. And I believe we have an apathy problem in the world today. Jane Goodall once said, she said, the greatest danger to our future is apathy. So Jane Goodall said, she said, the greatest danger to our future as humans is apathy. A recent survey of adults in the West, uh, Western countries showed that many people are actually just bored or apathetic in life. 54% of us, and this was kind of shocking for me, 54% of us go to work primarily just to leave the house and escape the boredom or apathy that is uh, associated with being at home. So we're bored at work and we're apathetic at work, but we want to switch up the tedium of that boredom so we go be bored in a different place. We're bored at home and we're bored at work. We're apathetic at home, apathetic at work. Kids are apathetic at school. They just don't care about school. In fact, about 70% of kids would describe an I just don't care attitude about being in school. They would just say, I just, I don't care. And that's their attitude about being in school. And apathy leads us to doing nothing. Have you ever had an apathetic day? One of those days where, where you, you just have this feeling of like blah all day. Uh, you pretty much might do nothing all day long. It's not that you were exhausted from something the day before, or you got up earlier, or you did too much. Uh, you, you actually just have this feeling of general blah or apathy, this boredom. And so you sit there all day and do nothing as a response. You probably felt lethargic all day, or dreary all day, or dull, or flat. And so you just stayed at home and you did nothing. You've ever had one of those days. You've had an apathetic day. <clears throat> Another pastor speaking on this, he encapsulated it uh, by using the ultra 90s slang word that teens in the 90s were always accused of using that, uh, being a 90s teen, I don't think I used very often, but the ultra 90s slang word of whatever that associated with like 90s teens growing up. And he says this is this feeling that we have, this whatever feeling, uh, this I don't care. Now when you look at apathy or boredom, he says there are two primary causes of apathy. And the first primary cause is overstimulation. We live in an ultra-stimulated world. We're stimulated everywhere all the time. We see it everywhere. The first place that you probably see it that a lot of us are guilty of is our phone. Our phone is just one giant source of stimulation. Everything we encounter is fighting and striving to be the most stimulating thing. Ever notice movies are getting more and more stimulating? When I was younger, we would put on the VHS and we'd say, well, how long is it? And, you know, it might be, well, it's 65 minutes, mom. Like, oh, okay, fine, you can watch her. Or if it's a really long one, it might be 75. Have you ever gone to the movies lately? They're two and a half or three hours long. I need a washroom break in the middle of some of these movies. I need to get up and stretch my legs because they're striving to be more and more stimulating. And so they can't fit all that stimulation in in 70 minutes, so they make it three hours or however long. 
We live in a world that is constantly fighting to be stimulating or more stimulating. We see it in our personal lives too. Perhaps we see friends jump from relationship to relationship, from boyfriend to boyfriend, a girlfriend to girlfriend, or whoever, because they get bored with one relationship and so they move to the next one because that first one is no longer stimulating. Or from job to job, perhaps. Perhaps you know someone who, who is experiencing this at work where they jump from job to job because the job that they have is no longer stimulating and they need to be stimulated so they jump around to another job. Perhaps you've seen it with people doing it with friend groups. There's people out there that they get in this friend group for a bit and then they jump to this friend group and this friend group as they crave more stimulation. Marketing teams inherently know this. Marketing teams know that we crave stimulation because we're overstimulated. And so they throw more and more at us. It's why every single time Apple releases a new iPhone, there are millions of people lined up around the block to buy a phone that might just be one millimeter bigger, and that would be the only change. And millions of people say, I have to have it. I need this thing. I crave this stimulation. We want the next big flashy thing because we crave the stimulation that comes with it. We live in this, uh, this constant state of basically, I call it toddlers at Christmas. Toddlers at Christmas must play with the gift that they open. And then when you open the next one, that one doesn't matter anymore. And this one they must play with. There are 50 more that need to be opened, but this one has to be played with until you open the next one. And then that one's garbage too, and they want to play with this one. And we live in that constant state in our world today of toddlers on Christmas morning jumping from one flashy, shiny toy to the next. Unless you think better of ourselves in the church, we do all those things in our lives too, but we also do it with churches. We do it with churches. There are a lot of us who jump from church to church. We jump from one shiny, flashy ministry, and then we don't get the stimulation, so we go to the next shiny, flashy ministry. And after that wears off, we jump to the next shiny, flashy ministry, and we just keep jumping around, craving that stimulation, never taking the time to get plugged in, never taking the time to get settled and be part of a fellowship or be part of a ministry. We just jump from one to the next when the shine wears off. So the first cause of this apathy is overstimulation. The second cause is undercommitment. We live at a level in our lives where we give between 10 and 20% to things. There's an old pastoral saying that says 20% of the people in a church do 80% of the work in a church because we're partially committed. And we're partially committed in a lot of places in our lives. We live life like a giant buffet. See, buffets are great. I love buffets. Any opportunity I can go to a buffet, it's awesome. Especially if, if it's my wife, who when I say, what do you want for dinner? She says, I don't know. Buffet is a great choice because everything is there. You can have pizza on one side and sushi on the other. And if you work your way in between, you've got the whole spread of food. And so buffets are great because you can have whatever you want. You can have a little bit of everything. One time at a buffet, though, I went and I got a plate full of one thing. I was like, I want that thing. And so I got a whole plate of it. And it was a heaping plate, but I got one thing. And everyone looked at me like, you, you just got one thing? Like, it's a buffet. You can have a bit of everything. And I was like, well, I just want this one thing. And it was like I had done something wrong, like I'd committed a social faux pas by only taking one type of thing at a buffet. But that was the one thing that I wanted. And that's sometimes how we live our lives. We take a little bit of everything, 10% of everything, we don't really commit to one thing. We don't fully commit to something. So we kind of commit a little bit to all these different places, never really fully pouring ourselves into one thing. And that's a cause of apathy in our lives. 
Apathy is dangerous because, like I said, it leads us to doing nothing. But it's also dangerous because it comes from a life that's focused on self. It comes from a life that is focused on us. One that views the world as primarily interacting with us. Everything that happens, we look at it and say, well, how does that affect me? Everything has to interact with us. One pastor said this about apathy. He said, uh, one pastor says, you, you appeared bored with life, but really, you were just bored with yourself. You have become a boring person. You have become an apathetic person, and that's why it appears that way. And so how do we overcome apathy then? How do we live lives of fullness, not live lives where we try a little bit of everything, jumping from flashy to flashy to flashy, never really getting plugged in? How do we live full lives, not apathetic lives? Well, I want to look at two separate verses and see how we overcome apathy through these. So I'm going to read two separate verses. The first is Ecclesiastes 9.10, and the second is Colossians 3.17. So Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. For there is no work or planning or learning or wisdom in the place of the dead, or you are surely going. Ecclesiastes 9.10. And Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, looking at those two verses, I want to point out five things or five ways that I think we can live life that will help us overcome apathy. So the first part. The first point is to just do whatever there is to do. Do whatever there is to do. The first part of Ecclesiastes says it. It says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. That's what he says. He says, just whatever your hand finds to do, do it. And I love that. And the message is even more clear. The message says, whatever turns up, grab it and do it. I love the force of that. Whatever turns up, just grab it and do it. And the idea here is because life is unpredictable, and we never know exactly what tomorrow will bring. When I was a personal trainer, I used to say, we don't start tomorrow, we start everything today. We never start tomorrow, we start everything today. And that was because we have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. My wife criticizes me constantly for being far too much like her father in the idea that I can't sit around and not do something. I'm really bad at sitting around. I'm really bad at relaxing. I always see something that needs to get done. I move from one project, I'm like, well, that's done now. And instead of just sitting around and relaxing, I said, well, I gotta do this thing now. And so I do that thing. Because if there's something to be done, I can't just leave it. I don't like leaving it until tomorrow. It irks me, it bothers me. I want to get it done now. This week, Elijah turned one, and, and I was so busy last week that I hadn't had time to build his birthday gift for him yet. And so it came to Wednesday this week, and his birthday was on Thursday, and Wednesday I had a long day in the office, and then I worked at the retail store, and then I had baseball, and by the time I got home at the end of the day, it was midnight. And Janice had texted me, she said, just do it in the morning. Get up early in the morning, it'll only take you a couple hours. Elijah's one, he doesn't know it's his birthday. He certainly won't know the gift is a couple hours late. And so she said, just do it in the morning. And when I got home, I just, I couldn't. I just couldn't leave it to the morning. So I got home from baseball and I set out to start finishing his gift. And at about 3 a.m., I finally finished and I went to bed. So I went to bed at three in the morning, but I went to bed satisfied because I knew it was complete. And I knew I would wake up in the morning and it was done. I would wake up and he would enjoy his gift. I didn't have to do any part of it tomorrow. If I had just tried to go to sleep, I would have spent the whole night thinking about, oh, I've got to do this and then I've got to do that and then I've got to make sure this gets done. And my whole night, my mind would have been racing. But we live in a world where we put off so much till tomorrow. 
We say, I'll do that tomorrow. I can get to it tomorrow. I'll go to the gym tomorrow. I'll start my diet tomorrow. I'll quit smoking tomorrow. I'll live a better lifestyle tomorrow. We'll do the dishes tomorrow. I'll do the laundry tomorrow. I'll cut the grass tomorrow. I'll do that report tomorrow. I'll stay late tomorrow. Everything is tomorrow. And this scripture here basically says, if there is something to be done, grab it and just do it. Someday is not a part of the week, but I think on someday is the day where many of our plans will finally get finished because we'll get to it someday. The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon wrote, one good deed is worth more than a thousand brilliant theories. The idea that one thing done is worth more than a thousand theories or great ideas. Doing one thing is worth more. Basically, do what you need to do. If the work is out there, do it. Someone has to cut the grass. Someone has to take the trash out. Someone has to do the dishes. Someone has to clean up. We all have responsibilities in life. And I think the reason that sometimes we don't want to do those things, those small things especially, is we think they're beneath us somehow. Somehow we say that's beneath us, that's someone else's job. And whenever we get that feeling, whenever I get that feeling, I like to just be reminded of the fact that God put us here on earth first and foremost as caretakers. First and foremost, our job was basically janitors. First and foremost, God created and he said, now you take care of it. You guys, you take care of it. That was our first job as humans. Sometimes I think we act like we're the creators. We created all these things, and someone else has to take care of it. And I think it does us good to remind us that he's the creator, and we're the caretakers. There's work to be done, and the truth is there is satisfaction in doing that work. One of my favorite times of the week is when I get to sit on the ride on mower and cut the grass. And the first reason is because I was born in the city, and we had a tiny little lawn. And so a ride on mower inside my 10-year-old body says, this is awesome. I'm basically a farmer. I'm riding a tractor, right? And if you could see me out there, I'm driving the whole time with a big grin, like, look at me, Farmer Luke. Uh, And so I think inside of me, it's just like this excited little kid that's like, I'm riding a tractor. But the other reason is I get to sit in the the tractor or the, the lawn mower. I put a podcast on, or I listen to some sermons, and I get to do a very simple task of cutting a lawn. At the end of it, the task is complete, and I feel a sense of satisfaction about doing a very simple thing. And I feel satisfaction over small tasks like that, doing that or cleaning up in the sanctuary or putting chairs away or tables away. It's rewarding. Someone has to do those things, and so it might as well be me or it might as well be you. When we do a simple task like that, I often feel like because it's such a simple service, we forget that it is service nonetheless, and it is still service. Simple acts of serving others or simple acts of service, something just like doing the dishes after potluck or helping out with coffee hour, those are still service and those still result in a sense of satisfaction when you're reminded that you're serving others. So the first step to overcoming apathy is to do whatever work there is to be done. If there's work to be done, do that. If there is plowing to be done, put your hand to the plow and just start plowing. And the second step to overcoming apathy And this is part of that first little bit that we just read. The second step is to do everything with passion or do everything to the best of your ability. The second part of Ecclesiastes, that first little bit, it says, do it with all your might. That's what your verse probably says, is do it with all your might. Or perhaps it says, and do it with all your strength. So the first part is if there's a task to be done, do it. But it's important that we do it well. It's important that we do it to the very best of our abilities, doing everything the best we can. Most of us don't approach all of our tasks that way, do we? Perhaps it's our job. Perhaps it's our charity work, our service, simple tasks, small things. We do it kind of like Peter did in the video opener. We do just enough to not get fired, just enough to get by. 
But we need to do every job to the very best of our abilities, every single task to the very best that we can do it. But society doesn't tell us to do that, though. See, society glorifies some jobs as better and more important than other jobs. And so society looks down on those jobs that maybe aren't as glorifying or as important. And people who do those jobs often feel less than, and they begin to hate their jobs. And so they don't do a good job, and they just wish, oh, I wish I could have a better job. I, could wish, I wish I would have a more glorifying, a more exciting job, or a more important job. I like to say, the person who cleans the toilets at church is just as important as the person who's standing on the pulpit on Sunday. There's no hierarchy in serving. As long as both people are doing their tasks to the best of their abilities, both are serving. When I was younger, I was in a worship band at the church that I was at, and I was in the worship band as a drummer. And I remember I was talking to the guitarist who was a bit older than me, and he was telling me how he hated practice. So I hate worship practice. He said, I don't, I don't understand why we need practice. I don't want to come to practice. The problem was he was really talented. And truthfully, he probably did not need much practice. The, the, the music that we were playing was way below his skill level. He was so good. And so he was talking about how he didn't need practice. I don't want to come to practice. And, and he mentioned, he said, actually, I don't think we should practice. He said, you know, as, as a guitarist of a worship band, I think that our worship should be spirit-driven. And it should just be in the moment. Whenever somebody says something like that, I think, oh, sometimes this is just an excuse that you don't want to put in the extra effort. But so he's saying, you know, it should be spirit-driven in the moment. And our youth pastor overheard, and he came over, and he said, absolutely, worship should be spirit-driven, and you should trust the spirit in the moment. And he said, but practicing just makes sure that we give God the very best of our abilities. The spirit will drive no matter how many hours of practice you put in. As long as you give him the steering wheel, the spirit will still drive. So if you don't practice, he says, though, if you don't practice, it's like saying to God, well, I'll give you 10%, or I'll give you 20%, or I'll give you 50%, but I can't give you much more than that. It just doesn't matter if I do any more. See, everything we do should be done to the very best of our abilities, and we should do it with passion. Have you ever met someone who does their job, even if, especially if it's a, a, maybe a society looks down upon that job. Have you ever met someone who does that job just with 100% passion and does it to the best of their abilities every time? I have a friend like that, and his name is Charles. I worked with Charles for years. He's a bit older now, and he was a part-time shoe salesman at SportCheck forever. He's, uh, he, he would come in every single day. He'd have a huge smile on his face. He was always laughing, telling jokes, just treating everyone really nice, treating everyone with respect and courtesy, which if you've ever worked retail or in the restaurant business, it is not always easy to do that with people. And so he just treats everyone so amazingly. He's such a great server that way. And I remember years ago asking him, I said, how do you do this every day? I said, people are so rude. How do you just treat them so nicely? How do you smile at them? How do you do all this? And he said, he said, basically, he said, my job is to sell, sell shoes. And he said, and I can show up every day and hate it. I can hate being here. I can hate what I do. And I can choose to be angry and impatient and just resent being here. Or I can love what I do. I can be passionate about it. I can be the best shoe salesman that I can be and do it to the best of my ability. I can treat every single day like an opportunity to put someone in a great pair of shoes and to be that person. And I love that mentality. And I love this text because it says, do it with all your might. It doesn't say, do it with all your might if it's a really fun task and you love doing it and everyone else appreciates it. It just says, do it with all your might. So every single task you do, whether you love that task, whether you hate that task in the moment, do it with all your might and do it with passion. Do it to the best of your ability. 
So if you're cleaning after the church potluck or you're putting chairs away, do it to the best of your ability. If you're washing dishes at home, do it to the best of your ability. If you're cleaning toilets, vacuuming, cutting the grass, your day job, whatever it is, do it all to the best of your ability and do it with passion. Now the third way to overcome apathy, the third way is really remember that life is short. Life is short. The second part of our Ecclesiastes verse says, for in the grave where you are going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. If you've ever heard a sermon on Ecclesiastes 9.10, did they ever touch that second part? We talk about the first part all the time. We talk about Ecclesiastes 9.10a, where we talk about this idea of doing whatever there is and do it the best of your might, but we don't often talk about the second part, 9.10b, uh, which is where it says this. The message translation says, this is your last and only chance at it. There is neither work to do nor thoughts to think in the company of the dead, where you're most certainly headed. We don't see that on uh, Bible uh, covers or on bumper stickers uh, or on Christian book slogans. We don't see that part often. This is your last and only chance at it, this says. Life is short. You might not get a second chance at certain things. I've had to do a lot of weddings recently, and, and unfortunately over the last year, I've also had to do quite a few funerals. And funerals always remind me of one thing, and it's that life is shorter than any of us think it is. We always make these huge plans for our retirement. We say, I'm going to go do this thing when I retire. I'm going to go do this thing in 10 years. I'm going to do, do this thing. I'll spend more time with my kids. I'll spend more time with my wife or my husband. I'll do all that when I have more time. And there's no guarantee that any of that will happen. One of the things that always stands out to me at funerals is every single one that I've ever been, been at, no matter what kind of funeral, is the same things are almost always said. Even if the person was an atheist or an agnostic, even if the person was pretty much hated by everyone who's in attendance, we always say the same type of comforting words and saying like, you know, they're looking down on us from above. We always say that, right? Or we say, you know, and we miss them dearly. You never hear a funeral where the, where the speaker says, yeah, John was a huge jerk and we are all pretty much stoked that he's gone. Uh, see you later, let's go celebrate John being gone. Like you've I'm, I hope you've never been to a funeral like that, because I don't think anybody would ever say that at a funeral. Right? And at a funeral, if it's someone who's an atheist or an agnostic, you never hear someone say, uh, you know what, and this is all there is to life, uh, and their rotting body is now just in the ground, decomposing for 50, 50 years, uh, let's go have some coffee. You don't hear that at a funeral. You always hear this hope of there's more. There's got to be more after it. And everyone is comforted by that idea at a funeral that there's something more or there's something after. Because at funerals, we are confronted with the brevity of life, the shortness of life. And all of a sudden, we all think, well, what if I'm next? And so the speaker's job is always to say something comforting of there's something else after this. There's more, right? After 9-11, churches in America and Canada were more full than they had ever been in years. That first Sunday after, churches everywhere were full to the brim. In fact, in Canada right now, many churches are actually seeing a growth in their churches. If they're just online, they're seeing some growth in their online presence. Or if we're back in person, we're seeing some growth online and in person. And it's because people are confronted with the pandemic and they realize that life is not guaranteed in terms of how many days you get. There's no guarantee how many days each of us have left. More than more people are realizing that life is short. We are calling our loved ones more. We are talking with family more. I think one lesson many of us have learned is to realize what is truly important in life. 
I love NHL hockey. I love hockey. But if the NHL never started up again because of this pandemic, I might be a little bit sad and have to find something else to do when Detroit's playing. But honestly, I could get by. It wouldn't be that big of a deal. I could get by, no problems. But if I never got to see my mom or my dad again after this pandemic, that would be an entirely different story. This pandemic has made us realize what is important in life. There's a famous line in a great Tragically Hip song that says, uh, it's, it's ahead by a century, where Gord says, this is no dress rehearsal, this is our life. There is no dress rehearsal, this is it. We have one shot at this human life that we have here, and no, none of us knows how many days long that will be. So do everything with that in the back of your mind. You can't put everything off until tomorrow because tomorrow's not guaranteed for any of us. Now for our last two points, we're going to go to the Colossians verse. We're going to look up at Colossians 3.17 and we're going to see the last two ways that we overcome apathy. And the fourth way is, as it says in the beginning of Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let everything you do, do it all for him. At Sportcheck, uh, when we fix bikes or when we, we, we do skis, we have to sign our name on it. So whatever we've done, we have to sign our name saying this was fixed by Lucas or this was, this was fixed by Colin. And that way, if there's a problem with the job that we've done or the work that we've done, someone can come and say, well, who did this? Well, why'd you do it this way, Lucas? Uh, or, hey, you did it this way, Lucas, but uh, actually there's a better way. Let me show you the better way. Let's do some more training on this. And so we can show people the proper way to be done. And it's also that there's a bit of accountability. Because if I do, uh, if I do a good job, my name's on there and I can see that. But if I do a really terrible job, I know that when they come back, it's my name that's going to be on there. Now imagine if we had to sign our names on every single little thing that we did in life. All those things. Even the small things that we think no one notices. Imagine if when you chucked litter out your car window, it said your name on your Starbucks coffee cup. You know, it says your name when you've thrown it out. Or imagine if you, if, you, if you have cigarette butts and every time you throw a cigarette butt down, it says your name on it. Imagine how that would change the things that we do, the way that we would do things. Imagine at work if every single task you did, or every single thing you said, you signed your name to. So everyone know who did or said it. Only for Christians, you don't sign your name. For Christians, you sign Jesus' name. For Christians, your name doesn't go on it. It's Jesus' name. Everything you do, every single word or deed, you sign Jesus' name on the tag. Would that change how you do things? Would that change how you speak to people? One of the problems that I've seen a lot on social media, especially lately, is that Christians forget that we are still representatives of Jesus on social media. I see name-calling, hateful comments, bigotry, racism, just plain ignorance on social media all the time by Christians and non-Christians. And the thing about social media is that you know who said that thing because their name is right there. They've signed the comment, the hateful thing that they said, their name is right there. But imagine if on Christians or on Christian social media, it didn't say your name, it said Jesus Christ right beside what you said. Imagine if it was his name beside everything you said or you did. Our actions, our words, these are how people often meet Jesus first. In what we do and in what we say, in the lives of those who claim to know Jesus, who claim to be his followers, that's where people often meet Jesus first. To your actions, your words, are they worthy of signing Jesus' name to? Because we are the face of Jesus here on earth. He sent us to be his ambassadors, his representatives in everything we say and do. I've seen a lot of Christians or pastors or churches in the last 18 months that make me stop and think, would an outsider, someone outside of the church, would they see this and see Jesus? And the Jesus that they do see here, is he someone that they would want to meet? 
Is he someone that they would want to have a relationship with? And finally, point number five, we overcome apathy by being thankful. In everything we do, we are thankful. The last half of Colossians 3.17 says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In everything we do, we give thanks. We should thank God for everything. We start every staff meeting every week. We have a staff meeting. We start every single staff meeting with prayer, and we end with prayer. And lately, my prayer has been pretty well the same at the beginning, and at the end, it is thanking God for inviting us to join him in ministry. And it's not always easy to be in ministry. Ministry can be very draining, very stressful, but we thank God for even that. We thank God that we are able to be stressed out about partnering with him in this ministry. We thank God that we have the human capacity to feel those kinds of things. We can and should thank God for everything. I thought about this for a while while I was writing, and I thought, when I'm cutting grass, what could I be thankful for? And immediately I had things that I could be thankful for. Immediately I said, well, I love the smell of fresh cut grass, so I can thank God for that. And I'm, and I'm thankful for how the sun and the wind feel against my skin while I'm cutting the grass. And I'm thankful for the colors of green, how every single blade seems to be a different shade, and the trees and the plants are all different shades. And I'm thankful for, for all the flowers that are on the plants, every one of them a different color and just a little bit unique. I'm thankful for all the sights and the sounds that I hear, all the animals, the, the, the chipmunks, the squirrels, all the different birds. I'm thankful for all of those things. But what about a less glorifying task? What could you be thankful for while you were cleaning toilets? Well, first you could be thankful for running water. I mean, I'm pretty thankful for running water, and I'm pretty thankful for clean running water too. We live in a country where we take that for granted quite often. We want running water, there's 10 taps within 100 feet of each one of us, and all of them have clean running water. So we could be thankful for that. We could be thankful for even the fact that it's a smelly job, but God gave us noses that can smell. That's something we take for granted. We can smell things. We can smell things, and that's beautiful. We could be thankful for our hands and our feet that gave us the ability to do this task. There is so much to be thankful for, even in the task of cleaning a toilet. There's so much to be thankful for in life. When you live a life of being thankful, when you start to thank God for these small things each and every day, you start to realize how much you truly have to be thankful for, how much we go through life just taking granted for, how much we forget to be thankful for, especially us here in the West. But when you start to thank God for all of these things, you realize just truly how blessed you are. So there you have it. Five ways that I think we can overcome apathy in life. We overcome it by doing whatever task there is to be done. Whatever our hand sees, we grab it and we do it. We do those things to the best of our ability. Even if it's not something we particularly love or enjoy, we do it to the best of our very abilities. We do it with passion because we're serving. We do it all by remembering that life is short. So we don't put it off to tomorrow because life is short. We do everything, remember, that we sign Jesus' name at the end of everything we say and we do. And we do it all while being thankful. In everything and anything we do, we're thankful. If we learn to do those things, I think we'll begin to live lives that are less apathetic, a less boring life. And we will realize that life was never boring in the first place. Life is exciting, and we were just living it the wrong way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for so much in life. Thank you for everything you give us. God, thank you that we have so much to be grateful and thankful for. And Lord, we're sorry for so much that we take granted for. God, thank you for rain. Thank you for the way that rain feels against our skin, the cold and wet of a raindrop. Thank you for the life that that brings into your creation. Lord, thank you that we live in a country where we can go and have clean, fresh, running water. 
Thank you for roofs over our head and floors beneath our feet and clothes on our body and four walls that keep us safe. Lord, teach us to be more thankful and grateful in life. God, help us to live lives that are not apathetic lives, but lives that are exciting and full and just vibrant lives, lives that people look at and they see you. Jesus, utmost remind us that everything we do, we sign your name. We are your representatives here. And let that invigorate the way that we interact. Whatever we do and whatever we say, would it be in good representation of you and who you are and what you've said and done. In all this we pray.